As a warning, this episode contains some racially offensive language. Please be advised. The Dimsey is an imposing fixture in downtown Macon. It is this absolutely massive building, nine stories on a block dotted with much smaller buildings. At the turn of the 20th century, that was particularly true. And within the halls of the Dempsey Hotel in early May 1914, a monumental moment in Georgia's suffrage story was about to play out. Here's how an article in the Macon Daily Telegraph described it. Macon may not be able to claim the first suffrage organization in Georgia, but she has the honor of launching the first anti-suffrage organization in the Empire State of the South. The group of women gathered at the Hotel Dempsey that day got the wheels churning on what is arguably the most active and important anti-suffrage organization in the South, the Georgia Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage. Here in Macon, where we're students at Mercer University, this was the epicenter of Georgia's anti-suffrage movement, and that organization would send shockwaves in the fledgling world of women's politics. Sort of the animating impulse for anti-suffrage movements is here. It's in central Georgia. Like, it has, that works out, but the ground force for anti-suffrage is in this part of Georgia. That's Doug Thompson, professor of history and Southern studies at Mercer. Thompson says Macon, now a sleepy town in the geographic center of Georgia, was where many of the arguments against suffrage were first tested. Debates that took place, that was largely centered here, uh, even for national level. People kept coming back to the arguments that were taking place here. It's been many years since women received the right to vote. But people seem to be coming back to Georgia on a lot of those issues today. This year, 2022, is an important milestone for women's voting rights in American history. It is the 100th anniversary of women in Georgia casting their first ballots. But this anniversary comes at an interesting time. It is a moment in history where voting security, voting rights, and voting access have become hot-button issues. Voter intimidation is becoming more prevalent. When you pair these issues with recent restrictions to abortion access, women are forced to once again go to the rallies and the polls. Voter suppression has come up quite a bit during this election cycle. President Trump tonight, after floating the idea of delaying the November election that he does not have the power to do, is... Well, the midterms are just two weeks away. There are fears of voter intimidation. The sheriff in Metropolitan... Bananas, we packed some snack bags, we got water, we're giving out pizza, ponchos... The fact that this became a global story of voter suppression in previous elections means that um, the eyes of the world are on you. And, and you're going to have to deal with that because, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be this hard to vote. In a democracy, we do not elect saviors. We cast our ballots for those who see our struggles and pledge to serve, who hear our dreams and work to make them real who defend our way of life by protecting our right to vote. Measures like Georgia Senate Bill 202, restricting access to absentee votes and voter registration, have highlighted new and existing concerns around barriers to voting, especially for minority voters. More than 100 years ago, 
the debate over suffrage was also squarely centered around racial prejudice. Our streets will flow with blood for the white man will rule in the South. Mississippi was the first state to disenfranchise the nigger, and I believe she will be the first to enfranchise the women. Georgia has a history. It was the first state to reject the 19th Amendment, and it took 50 years to finally get ratified here. 50 years. History tends to remember the winners and forget the losers. It's been more than a century since the 19th Amendment was passed. We look at the history we don't learn in our textbooks. We look at the people who, all those years ago, fought to block women's rights to the ballot here in Georgia. Their efforts reflect the interconnected nature of race and the ballot box a hundred years ago and today. I'm Phoebe Mansour. And I'm Henry Keating. From the Center for Collaborative Journalism, this is Shame is the Woman. class of student journalists met in a recording studio to discuss something important. Y'all, the first thing we got to do is figure out what the heck we're going to name this What should we name our podcast? But when you take a bunch of students out of the classroom, it wasn't necessarily all that serious. I mean, I don't know. Who's shaming? Why is she a woman? What is this about? Oh, my God. This is a Denny's. Sir, this is a Wendy's. trying to get a fourth floor. Beyond the jokes, we were trying to figure out whether or not Shame is the Woman was the right name. At the beginning of the semester, we read an article by historian Elizabeth McRae called Caretakers of the American South. In her article, she wrote about Macon resident Dolly Blunt Lamar, who spoke at a hearing underneath the gold dome of the Georgia Capitol. She was criticizing a woman who suggested that giving women the right to vote would help address Georgia's literacy problem. Shame is the woman who would point derisively to her own state's misfortune in having within her borders an incubus that she can't get rid of. Who is this woman? Why are we judging her so much? But at this point, around two months later, we still weren't sure if we actually wanted that to be the title. Podcast for sure. We can explore a whole episode with Shame is the Woman and the quote. But just like, is it title material, you know? Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to pop in here a second. That's our professor, Tanya Ott. That quote uses the word incubus. (laughs) Okay. Like, I'm really concerned, even though we don't quote the whole quote in the title, that a quote that says incubus, and there's another big word there I don't really know, um, is going to be a little bit, like, off-putting, maybe? You think? I I think that people are smart enough to... uh, 
understand what it means, especially if we explain it, if we explain the context around it. Like, no, I don't no, think anyone other than like really role players is going to fully comprehend the idea of what an incubus even is. Yeah, can we get a quick... It is a male sex demon. <laughs> okay, that's Therefore, one definition of what an incubus could be. Those voices you hear were me, my co-host Henry, and one of our classmates, Cole. But another classmate, Lars, saw it differently. You know, what they are arguing is that women's role is elsewhere, raising kids. And, you know, that sort of gets to the core of it, that, that for these people, they think that women are better served as mothers making men who then are able to make good electoral decisions. So it kind of gets to the underlying idea behind their philosophy. As you already know, that's the title we ended up using. It's partly because in the fight over suffrage, there was a lot of shaming going around. Both the antis and the suffragists expressed disdain for one another. The pages of the Macon Daily Telegraph were littered with back and forth. And in their policy debates, there were very pointed critiques and vivid accusations. Take this example. In May 1914, a giant jubilee parade took place downtown. This is how the Butler Herald described the event before it was set to occur. Now comes Macon as the latest entrant in the field of spectacular festivals with an invitation to the people of the state to join with the citizens of the hustling city in a three-day Georgia jubilee of fun and frolicking. The event was extravagant. A drum and bugle corps led the parade, but members of Macon's Women's Suffrage Association followed behind. The group seized on the event to hopefully sway support to their cause, and according to the Telegraph's reporting, they went all out. The women suffragists are planning a lot of big surprises for the parade, in which they will play an important part. The Macon Women's Suffrage Association will have at least 50 women riding on horseback, and will have about 10 beautifully decorated floats, representing what women have done for civilization. There will also be scores of women carrying banners on which will be the slogan, Votes for Women, and other suffrage cries. At the Macon City Auditorium, they also had a, quote, woman lawyer from Chicago, who had advocated for suffrage in front of the U.S. Senate. But after the event, Macon suffragist Emma Martin leveled some interesting charges against the anti-suffragists. The spirit of the antis was illustrated in an attempt of a few hoodlums to set fire to the beautiful float which the local association entered into the parade last Wednesday evening. And in their efforts to drop cockroaches on the audience below. Thanks to our mayor and Chief Riley, such things could not be accomplished in Macon. Now Martin does add a caveat. She hesitates to say that this was a reflection of all the anti-suffragists. We know that the real women who have joined the Red Rose Circle and calling themselves antis are as opposed to the principles and methods of the real antis as we who call ourselves suffragists. One of the non-hoodlums was likely leading anti-suffragist Dolly Blunt Lamar, the same Lamar who first said, shame is the woman. Lamar's story helps us understand something important. Why were these women fighting against women's suffrage? 
Lamar is a good example of the people leading anti-suffrage efforts. She was educated, her family was rather well-to-do, and she was involved in many women's organizations, including the United Daughters of the Confederacy. You might have heard of them. They erected statues across the South, which have since become hot topics in their own right. For years, there's been an on-again, off-again conversation in Macon about moving the Confederate statue at the foot of Cotton Avenue. Now is definitely an on-again time, as it is for monuments elsewhere. Today, crews continued moving the Confederate statue from downtown Macon's Cotton Avenue. Just sitting here, just remembering the monument, not really trying to protest, not really trying to cause a scene. There are an estimated 1,500 Confederate symbols on display in the United States, and one of them is Georgia Stone Mountain, America's largest Confederate monument. The Venable family essentially gives a um, but a lease to the to the northern face of the mountain to the United Daughters of the Confederacy, who is at this time is just a deeply influential group. I mean, it's it's white high society women that are involved that have a lot of economic power and a lot of social power. Um, it's the same group that is censoring textbooks that say that the Civil War was about slavery and and that kind of stuff. These statues fit into the overarching mission of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, promote the memory of their Confederate ancestors and the state's rights issues they fought for. In her memoir, When All is Said and Done, Lamar emphasized her profound attachment to the powers the Constitution delegated to the states. Indoctrinated from my youth with the Bill of Rights, as provided in the ten original amendments to the Constitution, and especially revering the principle that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. For political scientists, these are called reserved powers, and the Antis took those reserved powers very seriously. These feelings stem in part from the federal intervention of the Reconstruction era. That's when Washington imposed numerous restrictions on the South. And it created in the minds of Lamar's contemporaries a deep disdain for federal involvement. I early realized that the Daughters of the Confederacy looked to this, the Tenth Amendment, as their guiding star. For this reason, I have given the UDC a lifelong devotion. It is no small wonder that profound conviction and undivided service to the principles upon which this republic was founded should be the motivating force in my service to the UDC. For many anti-suffragists, states' rights were at the core of their ideology. Lamar's father, Representative James Blunt, was one of those who was very much a believer in states' rights. As Blunt left Congress in 1893, President Grover Cleveland charged him with investigating the U.S.'s annexation of Hawaii. The report he would issue was a blistering takedown of U.S. imperialism. That a deep wrong has been done, the queen and the native race, by American officials, pervades the native mind and that of the queen, as well as hope for redress from the United States, there can be no doubt. Some historians cite the history around Reconstruction and Representative Blunt's negative views on that era as informing his anti-imperialist stature in his report. It could also explain Dolly Blunt Lamar's opposition to women's suffrage. 
Many people might take aim at Lamar for that opposition, and rightfully so. But during this time period, many in the South may have seen this in a wildly different light. For some, Lamar might have been seen as doing the right thing because she was fighting to protect the status quo. Cherie Keith is a professor of communication studies at Middle Georgia State University. People saw it as being heroic. They would take the lead and be willing to, to step out and step against what they saw as sort of an incoming you know, threat to Georgians independence, reminiscent of what happened during the Civil War, other people coming in and telling them what to do and that kind of thing. So they're going to push push back on the national trends that they don't see as being beneficial for them. The anti-suffragists saw the North as stomping on their Southern sensibilities. And that was one of their core motivators. They were trying to preserve the Southern culture they were accustomed to. After the break, we'll return to Macon to visit another activist memoir, Helen Shaw Harold, a mother writer, and ardent suffragist. History is the key, as I tell folks. If you don't know where you came from, you definitely don't know where you are, and you surely don't know where you're going. Let's not wait until these neighborhoods are dead and gone to start valuing them. To really have a good sense of self... You need to be able to feel those who came before you. When those buildings are taken away, that connection is taken away. Welcome to Urban Roots, a podcast by Urbanist Media that takes a deep dive into little-known stories of urban history. We're your hosts. I'm Vanessa Quirk, a city's journalist. And I'm Dara Hussein-Wetzel, a historic preservationist. And we started Urban Roots because there was just little air for people of color's voices in historic preservation. Here are some of the community voices that we've heard making this show. It was a very caring community, I tell you. So much different from now. 5,000 residences and businesses were leveled, erased. 5,000. When the highway came in, it devastated the community. Oh, so many businesses and homes were lost. What do you mean there's, there's no monuments for any of these children and the only one that's there is for a white woman, which is hard. And the ticket teller said, you know what, it's, it's an N-word tax, it's a black tax, so you've got to pay 25 cents. So from then on, she endeavored to build something for her people, by her people. We want to educate the community to Biddy Mason's legacy. Because a lot of people who've lived here all their life, they know nothing about it. We've probably walked past it hundreds of times and never seen it. There are memorials. They have everything that you needed to put a historic marker in place. What you meant to say is you don't value Black people and their structures and their impact. A lot of people think it was all jazz. No, we had many doctors and lawyers, photographers. I love my community. We love Cumberland. That's what's up. That's the only reason I moved back yeah. in, baby. I didn't know that. I'm glad you guys had a good childhood. Good. Oh, yeah. yeah. We enjoyed it, baby. <laughs> Subscribe to Urban Roots wherever you listen to podcasts. In Mercer University's archives, there is a very interesting piece tucked away in its collection. It's a scrapbook compiled by Helen Shaw Harold. She was one of the most vocal suffragists back in the early 1900s. Addison McCready spent the last stretch of her undergraduate career sifting through that scrapbook as part of her senior thesis. It looks like it snowed on the table every time I describe it. Like you pull it out and there's little 
pieces falling off of the pages and like you're afraid to touch it almost because you're worried about just ruining it and you won't but eventually they just kind of kept it out on the table for me and every time you pull out a page it's just it's little clips of newspaper articles and writings from Helen Shaw Harold the woman and it's just kind of like opening history and it scatters all over the table and it just kind of really brings you into it. Helen Shaw Harold was important because she was exchanging blows with the anti-suffragists within the pages of Macon's newspapers. But Harold's background was different from the women she was going head-to-head against. She was not a born Southerner, but one who had built a life there. She was a suffragist in Macon, and she married a doctor from Macon, and she came from, like, the northern U.S. and kind of just, like, brought herself into Macon and into his life. But she took newspaper articles that she wrote and other people in Macon wrote, and pictures and letters that she wrote to other people and the minutes from meetings that she went to and suffragist organizations and things like that and just kind of laid it out in this book and used it as a way of telling her own story but also telling the story of other suffragists and anti-suffragists in Macon. In the scrapbook, Harold tussled verbally and ideologically with Caroline Patterson, an anti-suffragist in Macon. They clashed on issues of sex, race, and rights. One of the old clippings from a newspaper in the book is a letter from Lucian L. Knight, the editor of the Atlanta Constitution. Knight says preserving what a Southern woman is was important. You are right online. There is no character in history which quite approximates the old-time Southern woman. She was the embodiment of the noblest and highest attributes of her sex. I'm glad to know that in your championship of a righteous cause, you are not only keeping the beautiful ideal in mind, but are illustrating it in your own personality and example. You are doing magnificent work for Georgia. In the fight for the soul of the South, Patterson had the backing of the elite, the white supremacist groups, the very laws themselves. Harold had guts. The women who expect to influence legislation through indirect influence are the leisure class and have no conception of the value of time in a busy woman's home. Even though Harold was from the North, she married a Southerner and had a grasp on the region's culture. Harold used that in her argument for suffrage. She was still extremely active in the movement and in the community as well. She went on to be on the Macon City Council But while doing all of that, she still maintained her household and had three kids and was still the ideal woman for the time. Um, And she kind of threw that in Caroline Patterson's face a few times because Caroline was using that argument of motherhood, but was unmarried and never had kids during this time. And so Caroline was going around with all of her organizations and discussing this idea of how difficult it would be to manage the right to vote while being a mother. And Harold basically was like, I'm doing it right now. Like, why would it be difficult? And you see little quips like that between the two of them in the article, which I think is very cool, or in the scrapbook, which is super cool. Alongside Harold in Atlanta was Rebecca Latimer Felton, who advocated for suffrage in the same vein and manner. Being a working woman or a mother doesn't prevent you from being a good citizen. On July 17th, 1914, Felton spoke in front of the Georgia Committee on Constitutional Amendments, alongside Macon's Dolly Blunt Lamar, just on opposite sides of the issue. Here's Felton. 
I have no knowledge of any law that gives you liberty to deny any right of citizenship to your mother who loves you. You will grant that she is as good as you are. Lamar and Felton were staunchly opposed to the other's views on women's suffrage. But they were also alike in many ways. Both were politically and socially well-connected, upper-class white women. Both had an excellent turn of phrase and would go on to influence U.S. politics on a national stage. The Macon News reported that the Senate chambers that day were filled with people in support of suffrage. In comparison, there was only, quote, a scattering of people opposed to the bill. But that fact didn't appear to stop Lamar's passion speaking in front of the committee. The fact that I am the only David opposing this Goliath of 57 varieties of suffrage Philistines neither daunts me nor will make you think less of the cause for which I stand. This was just over two months after the founding of the Georgia Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage. Her case was simple. We can't let the Northern progressives tromp on the values and norms of Southern society. We beg that you take no chances. The progressives, headed by that spurious Georgian, that bull moose in the china shop of history, Theodore Roosevelt, have a suffrage plank in their platform, and their guns are trained on the South to break it, aye, to break her spirit, to break her conservatism. Instead of joining hands with this infamy, some of our Southern women are calling to them, Come over and help us. At this time, Lamar was president of the Georgia Association Opposed to Women's Suffrage. According to historian Elizabeth McRae and her history of the suffrage movement in the South, the organization had started at around 30 members at that initial meeting. McRae said that the group would soon claim a whopping 2,000 members. They did that through leveraging their connections to the United Daughters of the Confederacy. The anti-suffragists wrote and distributed pamphlets and letters and articles in newspapers, making their case against the vote for women. And they organized in person, too. Churches, markets, backyards, anything was fair game. There are women's auxiliary organizations within all of these religious groups. They are almost universally focused on education. Uh, and missionary enterprise. And so they are already making social changes. They just do it what we would often call at a grassroots level. So their organizational skills are immense. The tricky part was so many of these women were in the same clubs, the same churches. They were getting invited to the same tea parties. So their influence was largely happening in the same spheres. Women dominated and organized. Most folks don't see a tea party as political, like an actual afternoon tea, but they're going to discuss politics. They're going to do it inside of a domestic space. And so it's not assumed that they're influencing anything, but they are. To many of the anti-suffragists, that was the idea. Women could influence the world of politics without the right to vote. Those organizations would be the breeding ground of many of the arguments that would be leveled in the fight over suffrage. In the next episode, we get to the heart of why the right to vote was seen as a threat to the Southern way of life and the larger issue that loomed over the suffrage question in the South. That's next on Shame is the Woman. Thank you.
After listening to the podcast, you can learn more about these events and the people behind them at macon-newsroom.com. In this episode, we heard from Mercer University historian Doug Thompson, Cherie Keith, professor of communication studies at Middle Georgia State University, and Mercer Law student Addison McCready. It featured archival audio from Georgia Public Broadcasting, WMAZ-TV, The Macon Telegraph, WFAE Public Radio in Charlotte, North Carolina, PBS NewsHour, CBS and NBC News. This podcast is made by advanced audio journalism students at Mercy University. The hosts of this episode were Phoebe Monsoor and Henry Keating. It was written by Henry Keating and Lars Lonraw. The research assistants from Ashley Pemberton and me, Cole Brockman. Ryan Palmer composed the original music. Tanya Ott edited and mixed the sound. And thanks to GPB Macon's Grant Blankenship for production assistance. Shame is the Woman is an original podcast production of the Center for Collaborative Journalism at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia.